Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, everyone. This is Carl Shineman, president and founder of Review Less. And welcome to another edition of ESI Bites, where alongside the Honorable Judge John Facciola, retired U.S. Magistrate Judge for the United States District Court of the District of Columbia, we attempt to offer information, insights, and ideas about e-discovery innovation from national speakers on electronic discovery at a price everyone can afford, which is free, and available whenever you're interested in listening to it, which is whenever you hit uh, download, down, you know, or play on your iPod or iPad or whatever. And um, today we have an interesting show on, on what it is and has been a very hot topic in e-discovery for, you know, the last uh, couple of years. Um, it's the new federal rules, and specifically, we're going to focus in on the impact of the new Rule 37E on sanctions and uh, preservation for practicing lawyers. Uh, Judge Facciola and I were debating if there really needs to be yet another show or another program or CLA on these rules, given the lengthy discussions that have been had about them at CLA programs all across the country, but, you know, not everyone can afford going to a, a, a CLE program of the, the types where Judge Facciola and Judge Grimm attend. And since our show is free, we decided to put this out there, uh, break it into a couple shows on the new rules to kick off the new year. And uh, this will be the first one. And next month, we'll, we'll try to tackle some of the other key rules with a different panel. Um, so uh, our guest today, uh, uh, the Honorable Paul Grimm from the Federal District uh, uh, court of uh, Maryland joins us as like our guest, and he's been an author um, uh, of uh, and and of the sem- some of the seminal e-discovery opinions out there, such as Hobson versus Mayor and City Council of Baltimore on attorney-client privilege, and Lorraine versus Merkel on evidentiary issues in e-discovery, uh, Victor Stanley versus Creative Pipe on the waiver of privilege by not being able to make a showing that the review process was reasonable, which is sort of a, a poster child for the importance of using Rule 502 today, today as a court order to preserve privilege. And then, uh, you know, one of my favorites, Mancia versus Mayflower Textile Services, which analyzed Rule 26G certification and, and has been really seen as a poster child case for cooperation and, and actually became the inspiration for the, the last bottle of wine, the e-discovery wine we did, the fourth C of e-discovery, uh, created in 2013. And that bottle focused on the four C's coordinate, cooperate, communicate, and share a cabernet with opposing counsel. So um, glad to have you on the show, Judge Grimm. Um, and uh, the, the, the reason we're, we're having Judge Grimm on the show is he was, of course, very intimately involved in the federal rulemaking process. Uh, so we're hoping to have a discussion between Judge Grimm and my co-host, Judge Bacciola, who was also involved in the rulemaking process, on how the new federal rules address e-discovery sanctions, primarily through the revised Rule 37E. So I will assume the role of moderator and try to stay out of the way of Judges Grimm and Facciola as they discuss this important new e-discovery rule on sanctions. And so let's start here. Um, before we start, um, why don't the two of you uh, discuss your uh, involvement in uh, the rulemaking process? Well, mine was nominal, uh, only in that, thanks to Paul, I got to go to the Duke Conference Prior to going to the Duke Conference, for about six or seven months, I worked with a subcommittee uh, chaired by Greg Joseph, which included uh, John Barquette and Shirishin and other wonderful people. And we considered the question of whether a new rule of uh, sanctions was necessary, and if so, what should it be? Um, as you hear me explain later on when we talk about it, uh, we certainly concluded that a new rule was necessary. But in terms of scoping out the new rule, we had our, our greatest difficulty with attempting to define with anything even approaching precision uh, specific guidance or direction on what you had to keep and what you didn't have to keep. So in that sense, my involvement began and ended with the Duke Conference, and then I attended after that some more conferences, one in Dallas, which was devoted to the same issue, the issue of sanctions. But I had nothing to do with the drafting. 
uh, of the rule in any way. And I was not a member of the Federal Rules Advisory Committee. Well, um, Fash, my my involvement in Carl, um, uh, um, beginning in 2009 and, and ending in October of 2015, it was my uh, great privilege to serve uh, on the Civil Advisory Rules Committee uh, and um, to for a portion of that time to chair the Discovery Subcommittee. Uh, like Judge Fasciola, uh, it was my uh, great privilege to attend the uh, conference that took place that was sponsored by the Civil Rules Committee at Duke uh, Law School in the May of 2010. Uh, and that committee that Judge Fasciola made reference to that he was on, the panel that Greg Joseph, who's a, a, um, a much esteemed uh, lawyer and some very, very, very distinguished panel members, including Judge Shinlin and Judge Fasciola and others, um, tried to, to wrestle with the, the problem that exists uh, in the context of um, the duty to preserve uh, all evidence, but as it particularly deals in an you know, electronic environment that we live in now, where there's so much of it in, in, in digital form than ever was in the past. And whether or not a national rule could uh, be crafted uh, to deal with um, the problems associated with uh, preservation of ESI. The recommendations from the Duke Conference that um, Judge Fashioler was referring to, one of those specifically was to um, try to come up with a rule that would uh, provide a national standard. And in a bit when we talk about it, I'll be able to explain why that was so difficult. Um, but um, after the Duke Conference, there were two subcommittees of the uh, advisory committee formed. One was referred to as the Duke Committee and Judge Codal of the Southern District of New York uh, chaired that one. Uh, and the other one was referred to as the 37E Committee. That was the one I chaired. He was on my committee. I was on his. So we, we, uh, we worked on each other's committees to make sure we had sort of a consistent approach. Uh, and from 2010 until 2014, we worked on various uh, drafts of the rules. We had um, mini conferences uh, in uh, uh, where lawyers and judges and academics uh, came and gave us information. Uh, we drafted proposed rules. We put them out for public comment. 2014, we put out for public comment um, for a six-month period of time. We had three uh, hearings presided over by um, the remarkable district judge out of uh, uh, Arizona who chaired the committee, uh, Judge David Campbell. And we heard 120 people testify. And, um, and we also had over 2,300 comments. We um, went back and looked at these comments. We had further meetings of the committee. We proposed some changes. They were approved. Uh, in the late part of 2014, May of 2014, they got approved up the chain by the by the Civil Rules Committee, by the Standing Committee, by the Judicial Conference, by the Supreme Court, and they became effective on um, December the 1st of 2015, and they now apply to all cases that um, are pending in the United States courts um, with the caveat that as long as that is um, fair and reasonable to do so. So if discovery is already concluded in a pending case, then it's unlikely that there's going to be much appetite from the court to require that the new rules be complete, completed. But if a case was filed in November uh, and the scheduling order has just recently been issued, then the, the new rules should probably apply. So in longer than you probably wanted to hear, that's my involvement. And of course, any comments I express uh, today are my own personal views. I'm no longer on the committee, so it couldn't be the part of the views of the committee. Uh, but it's not the views of the court or the or anyone else. My court is just my own personal views. So with that in mind, Patch, that's my answer. And I think we should emphasize, uh, Paul, that the rules, obviously, and understanding them is crucial. But the advisory committee notes are are very important. I was with Lee Rosenthal on a panel, and Lee told the lawyers in the audience, "Now, don't be cheapskates. Buy. Make sure you get the volume that has the advisory committee notes." Could you explain to our audience? why they are so important, what role they will, do you think they will play in the interpretation of these rules? It's a great question, John. Um, 
the the rules themselves certainly um, are the are the uh, have the effect of law. Um, but as you well know, John, because you you were such a, a leading light in in this area for so many years and still are after your retirement, the I don't know that there's a rule of civil procedure that's longer than Rule 26. It just goes on and on and on and on, and that's the sort of the uh, air traffic controller of the full discovery rules. Uh, and and the problem is is that when we when the committee undertakes to revise rules, they don't want to make existing rules that are long even longer. And and there are times when you've got to explain what the rules say to provide examples, to explain a rationale, to help the reader say, well, what were they thinking when that language was in there? And that's the role of the advisory notes. And the advisory notes are are essential for not only these rules, but for all of the rules. And, and I have to admit, back in the dark ages when I was in practice, and it's been now almost 20 years, I didn't read the advisory notes um, for a long time like I should. And then when I came upon them, it was sort of like I thought I had tripped and uh, you know awoken and, and, and found the, the oracle at Delphi because there's just a lot of explanatory information to help you understand the fit and feel of how these rules are to be applied. It would be it would be a very serious. You would very seriously limit your ability to understand and apply these new rules by not paying careful attention to the advisory notes on all of them. I'd also like to mention the really uh, outstanding material that Tom Allman has been, you know, following the process and updating this uh, document that's uh, called "Applying the 2015 Civil Rule Amendments." Right now, it's a lot of history and some of the excerpts from the debates and what what you know so as a you know as a as a um, supplemental piece it certainly doesn't go into as much detail as the advisory comments uh, I think it's an interesting read and and I think you know a, a, a debt of uh, gratitude for anyone that's been studying this and reading this uh, certainly is owed to Tom who's done a, a phenomenal job tracking this as it's been going forward well Tom um, but, Allman for those who are are it, it, familiar at all, or even if they're not, Tom was for many years a general counsel of a corporation, large corporation. He's He was then in practice and he's retired now. He teaches at law school and he's been very active in all of this. He follows it. He attended, I think, many of the hearings. He attended some of the some of the uh, mini conferences and he um, he's sort of taken this upon himself to be a uh, the, the scribe of the entire process. He puts out commentary and I don't have any doubt that Tom will follow the decisional uh, um, the, the cases that are decided going forward to interpret these new rules and and um, I think Carl that you'll you'll see him probably uh, update his publications to to make reference to the case law as that begins to come out yeah, we uh, I'm sure he will we should also note that Tom has done yeoman's service in following the state rules right um, in terms of their following the federal rules, the federal rules have always had a profound influence. Indeed, in the District of Columbia, it is presumed that the uh, that the civil rules in the Superior Court should be the same as the federal rules. Someone has to prove a difference. So that's important for counsel. It gets probably beyond what we want to do, but we've got to think as well of the applicability of state rules. We've got to think about state law as to spoliation, how it applies in an eerie context and all of that. So, so keeping your eye on the, what's going on in the states is, is crucially important as well. Paul, I, I'd like. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I just want to say that Tom Altman and yourself, Judge Fatriel, will give a new meaning to the word retirement. It's, it's hard to <laughs> reconcile that with what I thought the, the word meant. But, but um, anyway. Um, so, so, Judge Grimm, um, if you could give us sort of an operating understanding of how new new rule of 3070 works. Okay. So let's let's first of all keep in mind that that. Why do we need a new rule? And 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 that's important to know what got us on this process. Um, the first thing you have to understand is that the duty to preserve evidence, whether it's always been a part of our system, the legal system, it was part of the British common law. There was a Latin expression that the law courts in the United Kingdom used to use back in as far back as the 1700s, and that was omnia praesimuntur in odium spoliatoris, all things are presumed against one who destroys evidence. And 
It was based upon a duty owed to the court for a party to preserve evidence that the court would need to rely on to resolve a dispute. Um, it became part of our common law because it's a common law obligation. It's not rule-based. It's not statutory-based. There may be statutory or rule-based obligations to preserve that are created, but this is a common law obligation. And because it's common law, every single state and every single circuit had the ability to refine the details of the law of spoliation. And over the course of hundreds of years, the 200 years of our legal history, there were different iterations of the rule that adopted were adopted by the various circuits and the various courts. To show spoliation, everybody pretty much agrees that you have the following things that have to be established. You have to have a duty preserved, which is not uh, complied with, a duty that is breached. You have to have some level of culpability uh, involved, and you also have to show that the information loss was relevant and, and because of its loss, there was prejudice. And what was different, however, is, is when did the duty trigger, what level of culpability was sufficient, um, how much prejudice had to be shown. And so what you got was you got a common law patchwork quilt of decisional authority that dealt with what you had to do that was not consistent. Now, when you were dealing with spoliation of tangible evidence, the airbag in an automobile case, product liability case, the defective toaster in a product liability case, then it didn't, pre it didn't present much problems because if you uh, had a toaster that you were suing for product liability saying that it was defectively produced um, and you destroyed it, when you had the plaintiff destroyed it when, the, when they had it tested by their expert, then that was the evidence, and, and there was no other evidence that could go forward, and, and the need for a serious sanction became very, very um, uh, easy to understand because there was no fair way you could dis resolve the dispute. That changed as ESI became so pervasive because ESI exists in multiple locations. Um, it is both subject to being lost or overwritten or destroyed, but it's also very robust in that there are oftentimes you can you can replicate it, uh, you can um, restore it or replace it if you go to other sources or do a forensic analysis. And it was when ESI exploded on the litigation scene in the 1990s and 2000s when this became a real problem. And the problem was that uh, entities, whether they're plaintiff's counsel or defense counsel that found themselves litigating throughout the country, found themselves uh, in a dilemma. How, how do I decide how much electronically stored information to preserve and what are the consequences if I fail to do it? And if you had multiple rules out there, and in some instances, uh, they were vital, uh, vitally different because you had, for example, the Second Circuit in the um, residential funding case said that mere negligence would be the basis for very severe sanctions. Whereas in the Fifth Circuit and in many other circuits, you had to show a bad faith. So what happened was parties didn't know what the standard was that would apply to them. No organization can have 50 separate uh, preservation regimes. And it was this issue that sort of uh, pierced through the fog at the, at the Duke conference by the good work done by Greg Joseph's committee that, that uh, Judge Fasciola was on. Uh, and that became the, the, the explanation for why we needed to have a rule. Now, I will tell you that Judge Fasciola is correct. We, we had some real challenges at first trying to figure out, well, do we take on duty to preserve when it's triggered? And we elected not to do that because the common law rule is pretty straightforward when litigation is reasonably anticipated. So everybody kind of understands the trigger. What's complicated not is understanding the trigger, but is when it, when it begins, when it's pulled. Um, and we tried to come up with a rule that would, that would encompass the entire uh, universe of spoliation issues, whether it dealt with electronically stored information or whether it dealt with tangible things such as the toaster or the airbag. And when we tried to do that and we tried to harmonize some of the circuit law out there, we found that the rule that we initially drafted and proposed for public comment was unworkable. 
and the reason for that was was it was too complicated. There were too many carve outs. Uh, it was it was not um, uh, easy to apply and understand. And so what we ended up doing in the spring of 2014 was the committee sort of said, well, let's go back to basics. We're, no one has a lot of problems with the notion of spoliation when we get to tangible evidence. So let's leave that law alone. Let's let the common law deal with that, and each circuit and each state can have their own flavor if they want, and it doesn't create too many problems. But when it deals with ESI, which where you have the, the problems of cost and burden uh, and overproduction and overpreservation and cost of review, that's where the problem is. So let's craft a rule that focuses on that. The second thing is, is that uh, old Rule 37E, which had a limited safe harbor for immunizing people from sanctions under the discovery rules if there was um, a good faith uh, routine application of an electronic records management system and electronically stored information was not saved, that was a limited safe harbor because it didn't apply to inherent authority sanctions, nor um, did it, uh, the advisory note made it clear that you had a duty to intervene and to um, disable those uh, automatic deletion um, software uh, features on your, uh, on your uh, system. And it was a limited uh, protection. And so the existing rule did not adequately give protection against some of the concerns and costs and burdens that we were hearing about on the Committee of Overpreservation. Um, we narrowed it to electronically stored information. And so we ended up coming up with a rule 37E, uh, which was designed in sort of the big picture. And then I'll, uh, John and Carl, I'm just going to give you sort of an over uh, 50,000 foot explanation of why we did it. And then we can break it up and talk about the various parts as you all find would be helpful. But basically, the notion was we will have a rule that replaces the old Rule 37E that is designed to be comprehensive when it deals with the failure to preserve electronically stored information only, uh, that it will um, embrace sanctions that would be applicable not only under the rules of procedure, but should eliminate the need to rely upon inherent authority of the court because the, um, the rule itself will provide all the necessary remedial steps that are required, and you don't go to inherent authority even if it exists, if the rule gives an adequate basis for dealing with a problem. Uh, and we'll act as both a carrot and a stick. A carrot to encourage reasonable and proportional efforts to preserve as well as have a, um, a remedial component that talks about um, um, curing the, the, uh, the loss where there is prejudice and only and clarifies when it is appropriate to impose very severe consequences such as sanctions that would include a adverse inference sanction or dismissal of claims uh, or uh, default judgment and have a, a, a very clear explanation of what the intent was in order for that to occur. So that was the, the purpose of this new rule. That's the scope of that new rule. And with that in mind, John, maybe you can focus sort of where we go from here in terms of the next uh, discussion point. Well, the first aspect that I suppose we, we should deal with is um, we're dealing with ESI and, and it is lost. To what extent is a showing of prejudice from its loss crucial to the operation of the rule? All right, good question. So let me just say this. Um, this, this rule, 37E, it is critical for understanding it and applying it consistent with the intent of the committee to remember that it is, it is critical to approach it in sequence. There's an A, a B, and a C approach. And if you do C and then go to A and then come back to B, you're going to get it all wrong. It is absolutely inherently sequential. The first step that must be taken is, is you have to look at the preamble of 37E. 37E has uh, a preamble, and then it has a subsection one and a subsection two, and subsection two has three 
sub subsections. So you start with that preamble, and there are some very important qualifiers, all of which must be demonstrated or the rule doesn't apply. So what are they? So we start off with electronically stored information. That's the scope. It doesn't deal with tangible evidence. That's the first um, threshold that should have been preserved in the anticipation or conduct of litigation. So if the duty to preserve has not triggered, then the rule doesn't apply. The next qualification is, is lost because a party failed to take reasonable steps to preserve it. That is a key concept. If a party loses ESI, but the loss was not because they took unreasonable steps or they failed to take reasonable steps, then even if you have vital ESI lost, if they acted reasonably, then they cannot be um, held to be responsible under this rule. So that it's the carrots there trying to reward reasonable conduct. Next is not only that it is lost, but that it's lost and it cannot be restored or replaced through additional discovery. So you have some very significant qualifiers, all of which must be present. Think of them as essential elements before you even get the consequences of failure to preserve. One, uh, it must be ESI. Two, it must have been ESI that should have been preserved in the anticipation or conduct of litigation. Three, it must be lost. Four, it must be lost because the party failed to take reasonable steps to preserve it. And five, you must find as the court that it cannot be restored or replaced through additional discovery. And that's important because a lot of times ESI that may be lost can be restored or replaced if you go to backup tapes or remote uh, uh, information or perhaps have a, uh, a forensic analysis of a hard drive and for slack space and things. You can. Uh, you would ordinarily not go to that discovery under Rule 26B2 capital B because it might be uh, undue burden or cost. But what this rule requires is, is you've got to be in a situation where it's truly lost and you can't restore or replace it. Once you have hit all those essential elements, then you go to subparagraph 1. And that's the point Judge Fasciola was just referencing. Because if you have all those conditions preceding that have been established, then the judge, upon finding prejudice to another party from the loss of the information, uh, may order measures that are no greater than necessary to cure the prejudice. So the first impulse of this new rule is not to assign blame, not to impose sanctions, uh, not to, not to um, talk about uh, the sentence, but rather to see if the prejudice can be cured and the method of curing the prejudice is to be limited to that uh, which is no greater than necessary to cure the prejudice. Now you'll note when you read 3071 that um, it's kind of broad. It just says that if you've got the preamble, all those conditions are met and you do find prejudice, the judge does, uh, that the judge can order measures no greater than necessary to cure it. So that's pretty broad. The judge doesn't have a lot of limitations in that, and they're designed to preserve the discretion of the court as much as possible. But that discretion doesn't kick in unless all of the elements of the preamble uh, have been shown. So prejudice is key, John, to the ability of the court to order curative measures beyond just additional discovery. Um, and um, what might those curative measures be? Well, you know, you could order that discrete evidence not be admitted, but not go so far as to knock out an entire claim or a defense. Uh, you might um, allow the parties to introduce a trial evidence uh, that um, one side failed to preserve information and argue inferences that could be drawn under a missing um, evidence instruction. Um, so you have a lot of, of strengths that the judge has. What the judge cannot do uh, once prejudice has been uh, determined is the judge can't order curative measures if the preamble conditions haven't been met and the judge cannot order any of the specific uh, measures that <clears throat> uh, subparagraph 2 uh, deals with, which is presume the information loss was unfavorable to the party, 
instruct the jury that it may or must presume the information was unfavorable to the party or dismiss the action or enter a default, those cannot be done uh, only on a finding of prejudice. You've got to find the intent to deprive that the subsection 2 has. Now, this, John, might seem to some people to be counterintuitive. Well, wait a minute. You, you have a loss of this ESI. You, it was because it was after the duty triggered. It was lost. The party didn't take reasonable steps to preserve it. It can't be restored through ordinary discovery. Now the judge has got to find prejudice and does find that. And by the way, the judge can consider any information from any source. It doesn't necessarily mean that the party who wants the information but can't get it because it's been lost or destroyed, that they have to show prejudice because they may not know what the prejudice is because they don't have access to it. The producing party, the party that had the duty to preserve, may be the one responsible for showing that there wasn't prejudice. The court's got the flexibility to get the information it needs to find if there was prejudice or not from whichever party has the information, party or parties has the information that will help the judge make that determination. But the, um, the, there must be a finding of prejudice by the court before that can occur. Um, the second uh, subparagraph, 37E2, that's where those very serious sanctions can be imposed. And there is no explicit requirement there for prejudice. And some folks have raised their eyebrows, and the advisory note talks about this, and said, well, wait a minute. So you don't have to show prejudice before you can get these very serious sanctions in the subsection two of the rule? And the answer is, is that there is no explicit requirement of showing prejudice before these uh, more severe measures can be imposed. But there is a limitation to when the judge can do that, and that is there must be a showing that the party that failed to preserve acted with the intent to deprive another party of the information's use in the litigation. So you're not going to have many situations where a party acted, uh, failed to take reasonable steps, and the information DSI was lost, where they also did so with the intent to deprive their adversary of the information. You can presume prejudice there because it is um, unlikely to be a circumstance where you have that, uh, that greater level of intent uh, to deprive of the uh, source of the information where you would not also have the ability to infer prejudice. So, John, to specifically answer your question, prejudice is essential before under 37E1, curative measures can be imposed. And secondly, while it's not required for the very serious um, measures that Rule 37E2 permits, the requirement that you have that showing of an intent to deprive the adversary of the information's used in the trial, um, <laughs> those circumstances are seldom going to occur in, uh, to occur when you cannot infer prejudice because of that um, mental status. So now, I think uh, prejudice becomes very much a part of what the judge is going to be thinking about. You know, it bears emphasis in terms of uh, the, the court's power. To remember pre-existing case law, a case in the District of Columbia where one party just found the limit of the judge's patience by its constant screwing up. And he said, I've had it. I'm going to preclude you from asserting this particular defense. And when it went to the Court of Appeals, the Court of Appeals said, no matter what the lower court called it, its consequence was to take, was to take from that party the ability to defend itself. In effect, the judge was entering judgment. So I guess, Paul, we have to emphasize to the audience you got to be faithful and honest. The court has to be faithful and honest in the consequences of what it is doing. I and think it can't key. disguise its intent by saying, "Well, I'm simply precluding the receipt of this evidence," when this evidence is so crucial that, in effect, you're entering judgment. Yeah, I think that's key, John. You put your finger on an important point. That's where, for example, if a judge is saying, "Well, I'm only doing, I'm under, operating under 37E1." Um, I'm taking steps that are no, I have great discretion here. I've got to cure this prejudice. Uh, and I'm, I'm ordering that certain evidence not be uh, allowed. Um, and, and that's all I'm doing. Um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not dismissing the action or entering the default judgment. 
But as you correctly say, if the effect of that evidence, if that was the most critical evidence and there's no other alternative evidence that could be used, then the consequence of that would be uh, of equivalent severity as dismissing the action or entering into default. And that would not be allowed absent a showing of intent to deprive the party uh, of the use of the information that was not preserved. Um, So I think that's a very uh, significant point. And and the converse is, is equally true. You may have a situation where, as was true of your famous case involving the gang they couldn't spoliate, right, where they keep screwing up in their efforts to spoliate, and the evidence still exists. But right. it is still appropriate to invoke subparagraph two, because their intent bespoke uh, an attempt, uh, an attempt to destroy evidence, which, as you pointed out, under the common law has almost always, always brought that consequence of a very devastating sanction against you. Correct. So they are they are important points. In terms of uh, the reasonable efforts, um, as I we discussed. I was on a committee, and I'm afraid we passed our failure on to you. We couldn't get any closer to describing reasonable efforts um, than we did. And the committee, I suppose, had the same problem. Um, as we go on, in as the technology changes, does the word reasonable efforts change with it? Would you reasonably expect the judge to say, well, there were better technological ways to do what you were doing, and by as a result of you are not using them? Uh, you lost this evidence, and that's a significant element of my my calculation here. I think I think you're right that that reasonableness uh, includes the totality of the circumstances, um, and the advisory note uh, points out that that some people are more sophisticated than others. Uh, if it was an individual party, a small organization that doesn't have a lot of sophistication, if it's a lawsuit against a um, you know an uh, a automobile repair shop, for example, that that uh, may use diagnostic computers and working on cars, but doesn't have a big, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, IT uh, uh, presence, then someone who may not have used available technology, that would not be under the circumstances reasonable for them to have done so. If you've got a sophisticated organization that does, then, of course, I think that that is uh, one of the things that could play in. Uh, And I think also, John, that... What was subsumed within the notion of reasonableness, and I think this is a very important point to stress because the next ESI bites that you and Carl do will um, deal with the other rules. Uh, there is a there are, there are a collection of rules that were went into rule changes that went into effect on December first. They are interrelated and they are integrated, and collectively they do four things. This is a key thing to keep in mind. The they promote cooperation. They promote proportionality. They encourage active judicial monitoring of all cases and intervention to manage those cases that need it. And finally, we had this rule dealing with um, uh, electronically stored information preservation and spoliation. And they all interrelate. Well, we all know, or, or hopefully everyone will know by the end of the year, uh, that the scope of discovery under Rule 26B1 now uh, has um, explicitly within it, the the proportionality factors that had been so sort of hidden from view in Rule 26B2C, and so proportionality necessarily, John, factors into this notion of reasonableness, and and so um, as we go forward, judges are going to be required to make very nuanced showings based upon the specific facts of that case to show what is reasonable and that will be a, a no single factor will be dispositive. Um, all will be, uh, all the relevant information will be looked at, but proportionality is part of it. And I think that's an important point because we are now seeing the trouble being created from the court, from social media. Right. And the fact that the individual plaintiff, let us say in a title seven case may simply not know how to, preserve the contents of her cell phone. And we have to factor that into account. Now, right. you know, as the cloud becomes more prevalent and there become, and it becomes easier and easier to preserve this stuff because the people preserving it have the motive of collecting it for the purposes of advertising, like it say, I think the courts will be quite demanding uh, when you come in and say, well, we didn't preserve this and we're very sorry. Right. 
I think what they are going to say is, what did you do? And given contemporary standards of preservation, were you within the ballpark or not? Right. Uh, on the whole, uh, my own view of this is having been in many panels with you and having discussed this with the bar, my sense of it so far is the bar is comfortable with this new rule and, and finds it advantageous. Uh, I remember a couple of years ago, at the point when one version of the rule had a lot of competing factors that had to be weighed, uh, the reaction was not a good one. But from what I've heard, we can live with this rule, and it now makes sense uh, to have this national standard. Uh, one of the are, are you council was probably was troubled by was that we were defaulting to the most demanding rule, and now with the national standard, that motivation has disappeared, has evaporated. Uh, were you referring to the uh, uh, the Georgetown debate two years ago between uh, Bob Owen and Ariana Tabler? Yeah, uh, and, and I heard the sparks. Yeah, but if, but if you listen carefully to Ariana, and you have listened carefully to Bill Butterfield, both of them have said they can okay. live with this rule, and it and it strikes an appropriate balance. I don't mean to speak for them, but that's what I heard them say. Uh, yep. We will never please all of the people all of the time, but. I think that Paul and his committee are, are entitled to, to great compliments for doing what they did. Judge Grimm, are you, are you comfortable that this rule has complete jurisdiction over judges? I mean, I've heard some argue that there still remains uh, plenty of wiggle room uh, for, for judges to, to you know, um, do what they want to do. And uh, um, do, do you think it has the teeth in it to, to sort of, uh, you know, be, be uh, followed within the spirit that you've outlined? Well, let me just say this. I, 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 let, let, let's sort of assume at the first level that judges in good faith are going to try and comply with the rule. If a judge says, I don't care what the rule says, I'm going to do whatever I want anyway, then then um, that, uh, then that then there's no way any rule can uh, address the situation of a lawyer or a judge who just refuses to adhere to it. That's when um, the parties have to, to uh, uh, you, you know, the, the over 68% of all the discovery opinions that you find on Westlaw or Lexis are written by magistrate judges. And, and I have a hard time finding a magistrate judge would just purposely ignore the rule because it can be reviewed by a district judge. And, and the magistrate judges are the real experts at all this because they deal with it day in and day out and they deal with it very well. Then the question becomes, would a district judge just purposely disregard it? And, and again, I think that we have to assume that judges are going to try to adhere to the rule and, and do so in good faith. Um, each judge has got to decide for herself or himself what reasonable conduct is. They've got to decide whether there's prejudice. They've got to decide whether that showing of intent has been made. Uh, and I think that judges can be generally relied upon to to do it with, uh, you know, with the mind that they're going to try and follow the rule and, and they'll get guidance from the advisory note if they do that. The area where I have heard some people say, well, you know, uh, you can't limit by a rule the inherent authority of the court. I think that the, the Ninth Circuit uh, recently came out with an opinion in the last year that said something to the effect in a different context. It was a it was uh, a rule that limited certain activity, and then the court, I think, was coming back to conduct that had occurred before the case was resolved and had exercised uh, a sanction to its inherent authority. And a party said, well, you, you don't have the authority to do that. The rule wouldn't let you do that because the case was no longer um, viable. It was over. And the Ninth Circuit said, well, you know, you've got inherent authority there. I think it's very clear from the advisory note to 37E that the committee's intent when it was drafted was that this rule be – a one-stop uh, shopping, and that, one's, that, that, that this is the rule that you go to to deal with the consequences of a failure to preserve electronically stored information where there was a duty to preserve it and reasonable steps weren't taken, and it can't be restored or replaced. I'm, Carl, please bear in mind that the jurisprudence up to the, the enactment of this rule had always put ex significant limits on the, un, uh, on the exercise of an inherent authority. Correct. The circuit in which I was a judge, um, the exercise of that authority was cabined by requirements that, for example, the bad faith that one alleged was proven by, quotes, clear and convincing evidence. 
That's right. Now, that's a very important point that, that John is making. You know, you go to Chambers, the Chambers decision by the Supreme Court in the 90s, yeah. which is sort of the, the most recent um, and, and most uh, muscular explanation of the court's inherent authority. You don't go to inherent authority if there is an adequate rule-based uh, remedy. The problem that existed before 3070 was there was no adequate rule-based remedy because um, it, it was limited uh, in terms of scope and, and, and what it did. Now, the, and in addition, in, in my circuit, the Fourth Circuit, I think, is the same as what John's was in the D.C. Circuit, that before you can use find an inherent uh, authority violation for sanctioning, you have to have bad faith, that there were additional due process uh, requirements in terms of notice and an opportunity to be heard. And in many instances, the law requires an enhanced level of proof. So if someone were to, to muse that a judge might say, well, you know, I don't, just don't agree that I can't. Imp- I have to limit my ability to impose these serious sanctions under Rule 37E2 to an intent to deprive the adversary of the use at the at the trial. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna impose sanctions under my inherent authority for mere negligence, which is uh, the residential funding decision, which was repudiated by this rule. Then that. While the judge, uh, I suppose the judge could enter that order or a trial judge if they wanted to, it would, I would not expect that it would fare well on appeal because um, it, would be, uh, it would be inconsistent with the rule. And even if they did, if they used inherent authority, they would then, in most instances, have to be find the same level of culpability. We, you know, obviously, 3072 does not use bad faith because we found that that was a loaded phrase that had many meanings in different contexts of the law. And so we wanted to focus on the actual harmful behavior, which is not preserving something or destroying it because you want to keep your other adversary from having access to it. That's a better way of defining the conduct we want to prohibit and and deter than to use a phrase like bad faith that may have multiple layers of meaning in different contexts. So, but you still under under inherent authority, you're going to have to show that heightened level of culpability, and you may even have a higher level of proof. And and if a judge was trying to say that they had the ability to rely upon inherent authority when the rule itself was adequate to complete the task, then I think that that would be a decision that might well be vulnerable on appeal. So the only question I can think of that that um, that I have is, uh, you know, do these new rules apply to all pending cases, even if they were filed prior to December 1st, 2016? Well, there's a, there's a very clear answer to that question. Um, and like many clear clear answers under the law, the answer is sort of it depends, but there's a specific rule that, that I can share with our audience uh, that uh, Judge Fasciola knows and that, that Carl, you know as well. And that is that if you go to uh, the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, um, the very last rule there is Rule 86, and it's titled Effective Dates. And it says, these rules and any amendments take effect at the time specified by the Supreme Court they govern, one, proceedings in an action commenced after their effective date, and two, proceedings after that date in an action then pending unless the Supreme Court specifies otherwise, which they thus far have not, or the court determines that by applying them in a particular action, it would be infeasible or work an injustice. So the answer is all pending cases are subject to these rules unless the court determines that it would be infeasible to apply them at that stage of that case or it would be unjust to do so. Yeah, so that means, for example, under the new rule, you have 90 days uh, within which right. to, 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 to uh, serve. Well, let's suppose you file on November 1st. Which clock is ticking? And the court would consider it may be a bit unfair to change the rules in the middle of the game, and the court will give you the 120 days. But there is an existing jurisprudence about this as to other rules enactments, and counsel can look at that for additional guidance. I do not know if courts, by rule themselves, will speak to this. Judge Conti, in the, the chief judge in Pittsburgh, indicated her court, I believe, had considered such a rule, but I don't know if that, in fact, occurred. Well, 
I think this has been a, a, a really wonderful show. I um, I feel like the uh, pilot on a transatlantic flight that has just woken up and sees the plane still flying. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I want to say to you, Judge Grimm, that if you ever decide to retire and you want to do these shows with Judge Pacciola, I'll be the producer. <laughs> Much Might be easier. It's, it's, uh, I appreciate doing that. Carl, if I yeah. could just give one sort of a uh, little bit tidbit of information out there to the sure. audience. Um, the, the, um, the, the committee recognized that, that enacting rule changes is the essential first step to making change, but it's got to be uh, followed by judges and lawyers. And so the educational uh, programs uh, are going on now and will go on for the next year. Um, and to help uh, courts and lawyers and bar associations with this, the advisory committee has a subcommittee of current and alumni uh, rules committee members. I'm on that as an alum. And to help the educational effort, there are five videos that were prepared. They're very short videos. The longest is maybe 45 minutes. Uh, they were prepared by the exceptional uh, uh, production staff at the uh, Federal Judicial Center. Uh, and Judge Fogel's uh, uh, organization was wonderful to help us with that. And they talk about the the Rule 37E. There's one that I recorded, uh, the video that deals with that. Judge Campbell has an excellent overview of all the rules. Uh, also, uh, he has one that deals with um, uh, management of um, uh, active judicial case management. Uh, Judge Codal talked about the so-called Duke changes, the changes to the Rule 16 and 34 and 26 and and uh, other changes. And um, the uh, duty to cooperate, uh, Judge uh, uh, Prater from the Eastern District of um, Pennsylvania. These are all available on YouTube. Um, and uh, so anybody who is saying, you know, I'd like to drill down, get a little bit more uh, information on that, um, they can go on YouTube and they can get these videos and they can look at them free of charge. Uh, and they're out there for anybody who wants to use them uh, to, to get a flavor for uh, the key to this. And then once you've done that, then as Judge Fasciola says, read the rule and please do read the advisory note. Well, that's great. Um, and uh, Judge Fasciola, do you have anything else you want to add? Or uh... No, I would just emphasize, you know, we are now learning uh, more and more how competence, how competence is being defined with more precision yeah, right. that the lawyers are which are obliged. And it would hard to be, it's hard to imagine how anyone could pretend to be competent without knowing the rules that are pertained to the exercise of the power of the court. It's bizarre. So uh, everywhere you look, there are seminars, there are YouTubes. All of it's free and all of it's wonderful. And uh, for lawyers who don't access to it, well, all I can say is shame on them. I agree. Um well, I want to thank Judge Grimm again for joining Judge Fatchiola and myself today on the, this ESI Bytes discussion. And if you have questions about this show as a listener or any other programs at ESI Bytes, you can feel free to email me at kas at reviewless.com. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Jurnov, for their continued support of ESI Bytes. And to the listeners, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd encourage you to go to www.esibytes.com with a Y for a complete list of our shows. And as we always say here, Come to ESI Bytes to learn more about eDiscovery before ESI bites you back. This is Carl Shineman, president and founder of Review West, wishing you a nice day. Have a good day, everyone. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.